Greetings, Rays community. I am thrilled to be welcoming Nick Lindy, the Assistant Vice President at the University of Nebraska Foundation and fellow Iowan to the Rays podcast. Nick, welcome. Thank you. I feel like you've had like, what, three Iowans on now? Don't let out my secret. We're trying to uh, provide broad representation across the sector, but I am just uh, always thrilled to catch up with folks um, who, uh, who come from uh, our neck of the woods for sure, which I'm sure uh, is not exciting to 99% of our listeners. So I apologize to all of you, but I do hope that we can draw some non-Iowa references uh, and, and come up with some generalizable uh, ideas and themes. I will say, if you're catching any of the video clip here, we're trying to do more and more with video, uh, as you all are. Um, and so we're going to be distributing the podcast via video uh, on YouTube and on our own site, in addition to the audio uh, if you were watching on video right now, you would see Nick with what looks like a virtual backdrop behind him, but in fact, it is not. It is four incredible guitars that I can see and maybe more hanging on the wall. So, uh, Nick, why don't you take me back to uh, where it all started in Iowa, and when did those guitars become a part of your life? Well, the guitars actually probably became a part of my life well before my advancement journey started, uh, but I would be remiss if I didn't say that there was a few uh, house parties and, and bars in, in Cedar Falls, Iowa, where I did get my advancement start that we played at. Um, I started my advancement journey at my alma mater, the University of Northern Iowa Alumni Association. And I know you've had Nate Clapham on uh, the Rays podcast before, so I, I need to let him and Jeff Keen know that if they're listening, my annual gift is in the mail. I'll get that year-end gift in. Um, and I started in alumni relations. I led the uh, student alumni association program there for three years. And uh, I quite honestly never thought in a million years I would go to the fundraising side. At the time that I was there, there was two separate 501c3s, the alumni association and the foundation. And uh, just the foundation seemed like the dark side to me. I loved alumni relations. It was kind of like everybody gets to come. We throw a big party and everybody's there. And I, I always felt like the foundation, you know, was more pay for play and you had to be a big donor to get invited to stuff. And of course, as I've learned in our industry, the, the folks that were invited to those foundation events were the strategic leaders that were honestly probably the ones that were, were leading the university into the 21st century. Um, and so I, I left the industry for a little bit, did move to Lincoln, Nebraska for a few years. And uh, then I was down in Kansas City working in the for-profit education sector. And I got a call from my old boss who was the AVP at Upper Iowa University at that point in time. And she kind of gave me the, the best slash worst pitch of all time, which was, do you want to help us, you know, start an advancement shop from scratch up here in Fayette, Iowa? And I was intrigued. And so I took her on up on that and did major gift work at Upper Iowa for a few years and met my wife and then we moved to Minnesota. I was at Minnesota State for five years. Uh, really enjoyed my time there. Before Nick, 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 I'm sorry. I'm not going to let you skip past the Iowa experience that quickly. Uh, I'm just right. going to comment here on a couple. On a couple. Let's of talk things. about our so favorite when Nick, Casey's General Store pizzas. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, when Nick, so when Nick got the call uh, to go to Upper Iowa University in Fayette, Iowa, just in the spirit of small world. Um, my mother actually worked at Upper Iowa University at that time. It's about uh, 30 minutes from where I grew up um, in Northeast Iowa. And, and I share that because, you know, as a first-generation college student, um, I was really fortunate that my mom worked in the education space her whole life. She worked uh, in the K-12 sector. She worked in the higher ed sector at Upper Iowa University. And so education was just always a part of our life, even though my parents didn't have that opportunity themselves. That being said, when you took that role, um, I would encourage everybody listening today, you know, at a minimum, look Nick up on, uh, on LinkedIn, Nicholas Lindy, L-I-N-D-E, because I have seen a lot of advancement LinkedIn profiles over the years. And I think Nick does an incredible job of representing who he is and what he stands for in his LinkedIn profile. And I bet most of you haven't really gone and audited your own LinkedIn profile recently. But when you read the about section on Nick's profile, he leads with this um, really thoughtful couple of paragraphs, and I won't read them all, but he, he, he starts by saying, the best advice I ever received was just quit. 
And my sense is those words from a mentor telling you to quit are actually what have led you to find a path that you're obviously super passionate about. So tell me a little bit about that conversation with the mentor, because I suspect that's part of what led you down this advancement path. Yeah, it actually was. And believe it or not, that conversation was with uh, Holly Johnson, who's now uh, executive director at Hawkeye Community College and the chair of Case District 6. And she was that AVP at Upper Iowa who ended up hiring me years after that conversation, actually. Uh, I was working in newspaper advertising at the Lincoln Journal Star here in Lincoln, Nebraska, and um, commission-based. And even though I was in my early 20s, I was doing well financially. And I remember calling her and saying, like, I've got no passion for this. Like, I walk in the front door, I don't even read a newspaper, and I'm trying to sell people on putting ads in a newspaper. And, uh, but I was making so much money for a 21-year-old and getting to go out and eat at restaurants and buy guitars and travel around a little bit with my friends. And I just said, like, is this what the working world's like? Like, I had so much passion when I was at the Alumni Association at UNI, and I had zero of that passion, you know, slogging newspaper ads. And so she just told me, it's okay. It's okay to quit. Just because you're good at something doesn't mean you got to do it for 50 years. Um, and I, I think I needed that from somebody I respected to say that just because you're reaching your goals and you're doing well, that doesn't mean that that's your life's calling. And it's okay to take a pay cut and move somewhere else and try something that's a little bit scary. And um, why do you think, I don't know, why do you think Holly felt compelled to share that with you? Because the other, you know, the other side of that coin could have been somebody who said, hey, look, you know, don't overthink it. Work is work, Nick. Just uh, make the money, save your money. You know, it's not always perfect, right? And, and so uh, it sounds like you're really glad that you got the honest uh, perspective from her. But there are probably people listening right now who are working in advancement thinking, man, I wish I were in internet ad sales. I could be making so much more money, et cetera. And so, you know, having been on both sides of that, the grass is always greener to a certain regard. But it sounds like you actually think this grass is greener you know, having moved to this side of the fence. That's a great point, Brent. And honestly, I think that that's something that's probably frustrated me in my career sometimes is when I do meet people that are in advancement, you know, with awesome opportunities, awesome donor bases, get a chance to do all the cool things that advancement professionals get to do. And they're not passionate about it because I remember where I was that day. Like I would have worked literally anywhere. And quite honestly, you know, ended up at UIU, the only university in the nation in a town that doesn't have a high school. So when you talk about moving to the middle of nowhere and doing something as you know entrepreneurial as starting an advancement shop, you know for me I was as happy as a clam. Like that was so exciting to get to go to a D two basketball game and to get to meet alumni all over the country who had done amazing things. And I kept thinking like this can't possibly be a job. And yet you know even in our industry I think you you meet people who obviously we, we say a lot in our industry that nobody wakes up or goes to college and decides that I want to be an academic fundraiser. Um, and so some people, it, they just ended up in it and I meet them at conferences sometimes and they're just not super passionate about what they do that, or they see, you know, my excitement, my energy. And they're like, how are you this way? Why are you so excited about this? And I'm thinking, how are you not like, isn't this amazing? The things that we get to do and be a part of. Um, but I, I do think that they're, Holly probably saw that I didn't have that spark that I had about getting a chance to do the things we were doing in Cedar Falls and um, not seeing me have that energy and that passion probably raised some red flags. And uh, after being mm -hmm. around me for as many years as she was, it probably seemed like something that she felt she should interject into my life. Well, the other thing that you're highlighting that is a recurring theme in this sector, especially among the people you know, guests we've had on this podcast who really are passionate and excelling at their work is the importance of mentorship. And I guess I'm curious when you think about other mentors, Holly obviously was pivotal in your uh, path here, but also even perhaps in your own role now, having advanced into more of a leadership role, you know, thinking about yourself as mentor, um, what's your view of, of mentorship, both as mentee and as maybe now mentor? I mean, I would sum it all up with transparency. Um, I think that there's really two aspects of mentorship that I've valued a lot in my career. One of them 
is that level of transparency. It seems like every institution I've been at, I've had a boss that we might sit in a, in a boardroom or be part of a negotiation. Um, and then it's that conversation walking from the boardroom back to our office where we're just shooting the breeze and, and they'll say, now, did you understand why I said it this way or how I said it this way? And I would go, yeah. And it's, this is why I did that. You don't want to say it this way because then people will do this. And it just coaching me through the, uh, through kind of all the nuance that comes with working in executive positions in higher education, um, that has proved very valuable for me. So I always try and use that every opportunity I can get with my staff. And then the other part of it is really about um, the why and how all the pieces fit together. I, I don't think in my career, I've always been very good at looking at the big picture. I've had to later on in my career, but there was a time uh, when I was at Minnesota State, I always tell it this way, that all the frontline fundraisers were on the first floor and all the executives were on the second floor. And we would always be like, I don't know what they do up there all day. Why are they raising any money up there? And uh, then when I was promoted there to a senior director of administration role, I started realizing what they did on the second floor and it wasn't easy work. It definitely was not easy work. And so I felt like it was part of my responsibility then to go back to the first floor and explain what was going on, what we were working on and all the challenges that came with being in a role like that because it not only bred more empathy in our staff, but it also helped people that kind of show up at work every day going, I just have to raise major gifts for my area and make my Dean happy to start realizing that like advancement is a bigger enterprise what are we doing on data science? What are we doing in software and technology? What is the budget outlook? How is our board feeling? Where, what is volunteer recruitment looking like? Um, the, the, those are the things that even me as a DO, I wasn't thinking about those things. Right. So I don't know if that's well, always good. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, like, let's go back a little bit to you actually going to the perceived dark side and take me back to, by the way, as a former, as an alumnus of the Upper Iowa Peacocks football camp, now knowing that they're the only college in the country that doesn't, in a town without a high school, I mean, that is some serious raised level trivia stuff. So thank you for, for <laughs> dropping that knowledge. Um, but what is it like having worked in the advertising world, right? You're selling multi-million dollar deals in the newspaper space, and then you move into the for-profit higher ed space. Take me back to some of those early moments where you were like, I'm a major gift officer now. And getting the visits, I mean, what was it like just some of those early conversations, connecting with donors? Because, you know, I imagine when you start in a new institution, especially one where you didn't attend, so you've got to learn, really, you've got to go a mile wide and an inch deep, probably, to just get some context for what's going on at the institution, but then also translate in that in the, into relationship building with prospects. And I don't know you know, given that it was kind of a startup endeavor at Upper Iowa, I mean, there's a lot there. New institution, new program, not a big tradition of philanthropy. What are some of the highlights from your, your time there? Well, there's, pro there's honestly almost countless. We could spend the whole time talking about this, but I would say um, I'll boil it down to three. One is that I just come to Fayette from a job working in admissions at a for-profit university. So I've had this unique experience of working in for-profit not-for-profit, private, regional, public, and now comprehensive. So I felt like I've had the whole gamut here in higher ed, the higher ed space. But I had such high activity goals working in the for-profit space that, I mean, I was smiling and dialing 75 to 100 numbers a day in the admission space. So then going into advancement, not really having those kind of activity metrics, but bringing that level of activity from my prior job to that space I could, I just didn't feel like I was doing a good job if I wasn't making 50 to 75 calls a day. So while my title Stand was up. direct, while my title was director, let's major pause game. there. Well, go ahead. Let's hit pause for a second, because I think that's where um, you are unique and that you've had exposure and you've worked in those different uh, contexts and just saying 50, 75, a hundred contacts or activities per day. That is not typical in this sector uh, in general, right? Uh, certainly not in the major gift space. And so on one hand, there's this art of the relationship and the long-term relationship building, but then the reality that long-term relationship building comes from short-term high activity output. And um, I guess 
what kind of, I don't know, did that, has that ruffled feathers on your journey? I mean, that's just such a different mentality that sometimes um, maybe uh, I, I could see as being intimidating to people if they're not coming from, from that same place or, or context. Well, I do think that there is a balance. So when I was at Upper Iowa, although my title was director of major gifts, because it was such a startup, I really felt like a discovery officer. I mean, I was the first time most of these people were hearing from the university ever. And um, so that, that for me, reaching out and just informing people that we had an advancement shop and that we were thinking about them in many ways was that kind of that first entry point. And I do think like as my, once I became a major gift officer, well, not only at Upper Iowa, but then when I went to Minnesota, um, I always kept those levels of activity high, but there was always that balance between how curated the portfolios were and understanding that there's a time where you need to approach things with maybe a C-suite individual with high wealth capacity where you got to do your homework a little bit. You can't just be calling and going, I don't know who you are. And like, let's just start from scratch. You don't want to offend them. And schools that have more progressive, maybe longer term uh, levels of affinity and giving that you don't want to call somebody who's a 30 year donor and say, hey, I just picked your name off this list. I'm going to be coming down to Dallas sometime soon. So there became a balance of learning how to research prospects better, how to research donors and how to really figure out the way to get those visits and get in and ingratiated and show that you wanted to build a relationship. But I do think that it is different based on the institution type you're at, how mature their fundraising has been and the legacy of philanthropy that they have. Um, Because too many institutions out there are hiring you know, three or four major gift officers, giving them portfolios of people that have never been cultivated at all, and maybe aren't even donors, and then asking them to raise major gifts. And all the stats out there would tell you that it takes, you know, 13, 17 annual gifts before somebody considers a major gift. And we're trying to take people from zero to 60. Now you can take them from zero to 20 and do all that outreach and try and get people engaged, talk to them, learn their story, maybe get an annual leadership gift from that conversation as part of a longer strategy, as part of a pipeline. And then when you're at an institution like I am today with over 75 frontline fundraisers, now it's all about swim lanes. What what are major gift officers responsible for? What is annual leadership giving responsible for? What is annual giving responsible for? And making sure that people are working well within those spaces and that you're not asking somebody, you know, at a major gift level to be doing a whole bunch of discovery work and vice versa. You're not asking your discovery people to try get in visits with C-suite individuals. Well, you know, so when you go back to your time at Upper Iowa, your first time as a major gift officer, but you really felt like a discovery officer and you were largely engaging people who had never before been engaged. Any wins from that experience that helped you? Because I think like, obviously there's a lot of focus on data and technology and automation and personalization and all of those buzzwords. And we're a part of that, but, we are such strong believers that you can take the same prospect, the same institution, the same donor journey, but if you can insert a person in a real human to human interaction, like Nick, the discovery slash major gifts officer at Upper Iowa, you can just inspire people to do things that even the best direct marketing campaign ever cannot inspire people to do, right? That is the art of the business. That is the human connection. Um, Did you experience that? Were there people who are like, great to hear from you. You know, I've never heard from anybody at Upper Iowa. And I imagine there was somewhere we were like, uh, sorry, like not interested, right? I'm sure you got the whole spectrum, but oh, yeah. what, what was the spectrum? Well, you just nailed it. I think we got more people that were saying too late uh, than we got people who were saying this is the perfect time. But I would say that there was a lot of people that said that this is the perfect time. I was this probably is going to sound like a bragging story, but it, to, for me, no, it really encapsulates everything that we had done at Upper Iowa. I got the alumni publication maybe four years ago or something like that. So I ended up getting my degree from there and I even taught there for a number of years too. Is um, So I would be on the list and I would donate and get the alumni publication. And I was looking at the board of trustees there and half of the board were people I had done the discovery visit on. And so you go, how did you go from that first call to somebody who's right at that perfect part of their life. They're thinking, what's next for me? Kids are graduated out of school um, and I want to engage and maybe haven't been back to Iowa, maybe not been back to Northeast Iowa in 25, 30, 40, 50 years, but have done phenomenal things 
in their careers in Florida and Texas and California. And this is how they want to give back. And they want to give back to a small private liberal arts college uh, in the middle of a cornfield. And so getting a chance to meet those people and when they would say, I'm so excited to hear from somebody at the university. When can you be out? I'm so excited to tell you my journey. And then being a small enough university that they would tell you, here's my class in 1974. You got to reach out to this guy and this guy and this guy. And I would call him up and say, hey, I was just having dinner with John in Florida. And oh my God, I haven't heard John's name in forever. And getting them connected. And then bringing everybody back to play golf at Big Rock Country Club in Fayette, Iowa. And just the amount of relationships we were able to build in such a short amount of time. We closed the first ever comprehensive campaign at 25 million, which I understand is small based on today's standards. But when you think about the fact that we hardly had donor information, no robust annual giving fund. Our annual fund, I think, was doing $70,000 a year when I got there. Like, how do you raise $25 million when, you're, when you're only, your pipeline is almost right. nothing? So it was a really fun right. journey because there was almost no rules, and we got to really invent the game as we went along. Well, and look, what I love about that, Nick, is uh, it's fair to say the deck was not stacked in your and Holly's favor in that context, right? Like no limited tradition, limited engagement, not a lot of data to go off of, but you still showed that if you uh, can run at a high activity, inspire donors, connect with donors, there's so much untapped potential, even at a small liberal arts college in Iowa with donors spread out all over the country. And what does that mean for the untapped potential at the University of Nebraska, you know, at the University of Iowa, at, you know, so many of our partner institutions. And so uh, obviously a lot of our work is, is how, how can we use data uh, and technology to be much more precise in our targeting, right? Not just refer, relying on referrals from the class of 74, not that that stuff isn't great, but how can we use data to accelerate that process? Um, but then at the same time, how can we scale relationship building um, in the way that you did at Upper Iowa, much more deeply in our giving pyramids uh, across the sector, because there are just way too many high affinity, high capacity prospects who may not have been philanthropic in the past, in part because nobody's ever talked to them before. Nobody's ever engaged them. Nobody's ever connected their interests to opportunities that exist today that they're just not aware of as they've gone off to do their um, their work. So I would imagine that that work at Upper Iowa, even though it's a relatively quick stint, um, I don't know, maybe it even has helped shape your perspective on the sector today. Well, it definitely did. And I, I will share this briefly is that when I, so I was at Upper Iowa for three years and then I left to become the director of development for the College of Business at Minnesota State. And so when I got then in the College of Business world, I started, you know, I go to AACSB conferences and things like that and start talking to other business school peers and what you just mentioned, Brent, was a huge gap in people that were working for Power Five schools that maybe got their job uh, after working at other nonprofits. They come to a prestigious business school. They get handed an 80-person portfolio just chocked full of six-figure donors. And all they have to do is call them up and say, hey, I'm the new director of development. And pe people would say, absolutely. When are you going to come out? Let's talk. I want to give. I want to engage. And to me, I felt like they missed a very pivotal moment in their career of getting, you know, phone slammed on them, getting told, I don't want to engage, that you got to understand what a good portfolio really looks like, or, or quite honestly, you probably need the opposite. You need to know what a bad portfolio looks like, or, and what that looks like on the ground level to truly appreciate what, uh, you know, so many years of great development work sets some new professionals up for. Some people start these jobs, and they get a absolutely phenomenal dean or a college with a great history of philanthropic giving um, and they just run and in some ways they think that that's the job and quite honestly in some cases it is um, right but for six thousand higher ed shops higher ed advancement shops across the country that's a handful that's maybe a hundred schools 150 schools in the nation that can really say that and the rest of them have to do the dirty yeah. work of discovery and qualification and pipeline development uh, it's getting harder and harder as we go. All right. Well, let's create some uh, perspective and humility for all those folks carrying incredible portfolios. Um, worst donor interaction ever, Nick. Anything come to mind? Anybody uh, just unload on you over the years? I mean, 
Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I think for me, the, the worst donor interactions have really come from the fact that people who have just misconceptions of what fundraising is in general or advancement. Um, I probably saw this more in Iowa than I saw it anywhere else. And people just not even willing to have a five minute conversation on the phone. Uh, and if it's because they had a bad experience, let us know about that bad experience. Like that, that's helpful for me. Uh, it's something that we can get in our system so that you don't get called a hundred times over the next 10 years too. Um, but I would also say that the, and maybe it's not the worst donors, but the trickiest donors are those who just have this incredible passion, but it's just so incredibly narrow. Uh, I had a donor one time that wanted to do a six figure gift to a staff. If we bring back the marching band um, and a six figure gift could not afford to bring back a marching band. And it was so difficult because they wanted to make an impact. They wanted to have an influence on music in higher yeah. ed, but that just wasn't the fit. Um, and so it wasn't a bad donor experience by any stretch, but it was uh, a humbling experience for me to, to go, wow, somebody who's this passionate and this philanthropic that wants to do this thing and we couldn't make it happen. And I think that they were frustrated. <laughs> they were, fr I think they were frustrated with my ability to scale what the ability to understand if other people wanted to donate to this or whether yeah. or not we could pull it off. But I think that that's, that always resonates with me about the, the gifts you have to turn away because uh, they don't, don't yeah. align with the future of the institution. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good, a great example. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about the importance of connecting donor interests with philanthropic opportunities, but when their interests are so specific, um, obviously I'm sure you tried to reshape it around music or around other Arts, related yeah. adjacent, but it was not, the marching band and, and that's got to be uh, uh uh tough especially when you know there's capacity and a willingness to write the check you just can't what quite route it in, in in the manner they want so you uh you you talked about your time um on the uh first floor and then the second floor uh with uh, minnesota state in uh, mankato and that ultimately I, I guess one thing i wanted to just touch on you've already referenced it but in addition to your day job uh, as a um, as a frontline uh, at that time professional and then administrator, um, uh, an up and coming rock star as well, uh, you took on teaching. And yeah. we have not talked to a lot of folks on this podcast who have served uh, in teaching roles. And I'd imagine there are a lot of people out there who actually have similar backgrounds to you that maybe have never even thought about. Uh, what it would mean to become a, an adjunct professor, for example. So how did that come to be? And um, I would imagine that's an incredible way to stay really connected to the student impact and the mission that you're serving on a daily basis. Um, and so I, I'd love to just kind of get your perspective on, on what it meant to teach in addition to raise money for those students you were teaching. Uh, that's a, I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to talk about this because quite honestly, this is probably the one part of my uh, career that I never get to share. And, and it's really meaningful to me uh, and it has an interesting uh, advancement lens and slant too. So Minnesota State is about 16,000 students uh, in South Central Minnesota. And when I was leading uh, development for the College of Business, I was meeting with a lot of C-suite individuals and the, the profile was very similar. Undergrad at Minnesota State and then uh, likely did their MBA elsewhere, uh, either St. Thomas, uh, the Carlson School at the University of Minnesota or you know, Northwestern or things like that. And then they ascended to great business roles in the Twin Cities. And there was a time where, you know, a lot of the big four accounting firms and other financial institutions were saying that they didn't want to hire Minnesota State grads. And um, I was always, I always thought my role, especially in development there, because we were in a, we were integrated advancement. So we had the alumni association. We worked a lot on career services and internships and then the major giving component. So I would always walk in thinking, you know, I want to meet you as an individual. I want your firm to hire our students and I want to get your expertise back in the classroom. And so some of these C-suite individuals would tell me that, uh, you know, we stopped recruiting in Mankato four years ago because we had, you know, 10 interviews with students and eight of them were from the University of Minnesota and one was from St. Thomas and one was from Mankato and the Mankato kid showed up in jeans. 
And of course, I had a little bit of pride there. Where I thought, that's right, blue collar regional public. Dang right, those 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 are my kids. Um, but I understood that they they did not exude the professionalism that they were looking for. And so I shared this with the dean um, over a course of months early on in my tenure. I'm like, you know, this is really tough. We don't have the best reputation for professionalism, especially in the the downtown kind of Fortune 500 scene in the Twin Cities. And the dean just said, like, you know, what do you want me to do about it in, in so many ways? And I said, well, I mean, like, is there a class that we can do and like teach professionalism? And she goes, well, why don't you create it? And so I created that course um, with a lot of help of those C-suite donors and alumni. And every single business major at Minnesota State had to take that course. So there was a time and it was one of the more emotional moments in my career where I was in the Taylor Center. We were graduating like 4,000 or 5,000 students and every single business graduate that walked across the stage had me as a professor. And so it was just the greatest engagement opportunity to bring in these C-suite individuals to tell their story, how they sat in the same chairs that these students did and teach them what it means. We did etiquette training, networking, how to dress, everybody got their measurements. We did professional LinkedIn headshots. Um, and so for me, you, you made a comment, Brent, that really nailed it was, it was so easy for me then to travel to Seattle or San Francisco and sit in a C-suite uh, graduate's office. And when they say, well, tell me what's going on back in Mankato. And I don't, don't only get to tell them the Dean's vision, but I get to tell them what I'm seeing from you know, students that were battling homelessness, hunger, uh, you know, coming from small towns, people that were still raising their families, veterans, international students, just running the gamut of the students that we were serving and how bright and smart they were, uh, how hardworking they were and how they really wanted to become the best business professionals that they could. And uh, it was, you know, not everybody is going to have that chance to do that. But I do think that uh, I would encourage anybody who is in development, you got to sit in a few classes. You got to really start, go, show up at the student club meetings and listen to the leadership that comes at us. Listen how community focused that these students are and what yeah. their dreams and aspirations are, because that's part of what we're trying to do to get there. And it, and I think it harkened back to a, a pivotal moment in my life. You know, I started at Northern Iowa as a business major and my grades were so terrible. I got put on academic probation. I was living in my car for a few weeks. Uh, and then years later, to get faculty induction into the Beta Gamma Sigma, which is the you know smart kids business <laughs> uh, fraternity at Minnesota State, it was kind of it felt like uh, even though I didn't have the best business school experience as a student, I was able to have some in real world influence on a business school uh, in my journey. So it was absolutely. I love that. I love it, Nick. Thank you for sharing. Um, and just um, again, take a look at Nick's LinkedIn. But the class that he's referencing was called Professional Preparation for Business Careers. And I think in a certain regard, when you look at the pressure higher education was under in 2019 and early 2020, and is definitely under right now in 2020, and concerns around student loans and, and financing of, of public higher education, et cetera, um, I think those are, those are you know, areas where, I mean, you talk about the blue collar, the kids showing up in jeans. I mean, I think about you know, my first time to the East Coast was for my recruiting trips uh, in high school. And I went to Dartmouth, Princeton, uh, Brown University on these recruiting trips. I remember showing up at Princeton and we had a dinner that night. You know, my dad and I, we had no idea what we were doing, right? We're from a farm in Iowa. We show up in jeans and everybody there is dressed to the nines. And I didn't have a blazer, much less even probably know what one was called at that time. And, you know, it doesn't, doesn't change who I was, right? It doesn't change anything, right? But it's about how do you uh, position kids to compete? How do you level the playing field? Some of that can come by way of financial aid. Some of that can come through scholarship, mentorship. And then sometimes, you know, I'd, I'd love to know just more about some of the success stories when you think about it before and after in the professional preparation for business careers curriculum, because I'm sure so much of it is just basic table stakes. What we would view now as common sense that was not at all common sense to that kid from Southern Minnesota who just had no exposure to yeah. what it meant to work and conduct yourself in a professional way. So I'm, I'm just curious if you have any before and after stories 
um, that you think of with students who you felt like really embraced it um, and, and maybe it just allowed them to level their playing field a little bit more. Well, I've got a, I got a couple, and I think one is a lot more general. Um, you know, when we do our etiquette dinner and we have all the different, the water, the white wine and the red wine glasses and like having people sit down and, you know, if you're from a smaller farm community in Minnesota, you're seeing you this. Mean there you wasn't, know, there, there wasn't a, a bush light glass or a well, <laughs> there was upon request. Uh, <laughs> so, but like, what are all these forks? What are all these plates? You know, B and D bread plate dinner. I just, uh, you know, your drink, your bread plate, it was amazing to see kind of the aha moments and people overcoming the fears of networking. The fact that, you know, I'm still this way. I've been in this industry for over 15 years. I still get nervous going into networking events or conferences. It's just kind of, I don't know these people, but you start realizing nobody knows anybody. That's why we're all here. And if you go up to somebody with confidence, they're going to be glad that you came and talked to them, just like you'd be glad if somebody came up to you and talked to you. Um, but one of the things that we did, I had a phenomenal teaching assistant named Tammy Bulky, and we, we had everybody uh, add us onto LinkedIn as part of the class because we wanted to see if they had a professional headshot. They filled it out appropriately. No mistakes. Don't spell the school's name wrong. All those things, their interests, so that they could network with all of our speakers and with everybody else in the class. And, you know, I stopped teaching there. Uh, that's been about three years, four years now. And I've got over a thousand of those students on my LinkedIn. So every day when I wake up, I get to see this person's now working here and this person's just been promoted and mm -hmm. I send notes and they send me notes. And we, it's been literally the most fulfilling thing in my career. Um, because even though I still get texts and, and phone calls from some of my favorite donors from all my institutions over the years to see somebody who's, you know, 26 and said, Hey, you know, I just walked in for a job interview and I had to look up that YouTube video you showed us all about how to tie a tie. And I go, I love that because that's real life. Or I, you know, I sat down at a wedding and I had to put up my B and my D to make sure I didn't steal the person next to me's drinking glass. I just, those are the things that, um, like you said, you think that they're common sense, but they aren't always common sense. And as somebody like, you know, just like you, Brent, I came from a small farming community in Iowa um, and so the first time I sat down at a dinner that had multiple plates, the intimidation factor, it's crippling and, and it's, you lose your confidence very quickly because you don't feel like you belong. And I, and I, I mean, my heart breaks for all the people that maybe have that experience, particularly in business schools, um, who do realize that maybe I, maybe this isn't for me and they quit and they go back and they don't realize that this will feel normal. You just gotta, you just gotta get through a few iterations yeah. and you'll get your confidence. Well, look, I think part of what you're touching on as well is uh, the importance of human to human engagement, right? Whether it's professor to student or gift officer to prospective donor, there is only so much that um, you can get by without human engagement. And what I mean by that is, for example, um, that YouTube video about how to tie a tie, it's always been there, right? Tutorials about how to create a good LinkedIn profile, they've been there. All that content is there. But just having it there and not having somebody who can be a conduit to know which content, which etiquette, which lesson for that student is going to help create a level uh, playing field. That's, I think, the role of fundraiser today is all of those funding opportunities, all of those colleges, units, deans, scholarships, they're there. They're Googleable. You can find them. The donors are there. But if there isn't somebody who can help inspire and be that matchmaker, um, that is why we think after years, decades of investment and innovation and direct marketing and, you know, email journeys and personalization, there is a greater need for scaling human to human engagement than ever before. If you want to stand out, whether it's trying to impact a 19 year old or a 90 year old. And um, I know you're doing a lot of thinking. We're doing a bunch of work on that front uh, across the Nebraska system now. Uh, and I just kind of like your perspective on this this topic of scaling deeper into the giving pyramid. Well, it's curation. I mean, that's what you're talking about is the donors who might not have been engaged with the university for a long time. What matters? Where are we going from here? They, they know what it was like when they were there, but what is the priorities? What are we trying to be world-class at? They need you to tell them. And to your point, I mean, you might be able to find some of that stuff on an about us page on the web, but they're not seeking that out. Those are the conversations that come up 
over a cup of coffee where people go, tell me what Nebraska is trying to be great at and where we're going to be five years from now. And you got to be able to take our president, our chancellors, our deans, that message and make it understandable. I mean, you know, take the academia out of it and just make it matter for them and, and why it has far ranging impacts, uh, what it will do for workforce, what it does for the economy of the state and what it does for kind of the sons and daughters of Nebraskans and, and really our surrounding states everywhere. Cause it, it's going to make a huge difference, but people don't realize that they don't think about universities that way. They think of their lived experience and it's until they become a donor and start investing their hard-earned money in that mission that they want to know, if I give this gift, what does that mean for the future of the University of Nebraska? We are at this inflection point in 2020 where there is uh, just unprecedented change. Um, the stat that I keep referencing, and anybody listening has probably heard it on a prior episode now, is there were 10 million daily active users of Zoom in December of 2019, less than a year ago. There were 300 million by April. And I've heard Brian Hastings, your foundation CEO, comment in a couple of situations that this, uh, some of the unexpected benefits of this unfortunate shift that has been um, thrust upon us by COVID is that we've been able to scale impact and reach to uh, our highest level donors and our uh, you know, most recent graduates in ways that are far more efficient than we've experienced in the past. And so uh, I guess I'm just curious, having been a practitioner in this space now for 15 plus years, have you ever experienced anything like this? When you think about the behavior change by both staff, the, the pace at which we can innovate, uh, and the really the willingness by our donor community to embrace some of these new tools and technologies. I mean, what is your take on that as we sit here in November of 2020? So, well, I guess I could say that if I've, if I've seen it in my career, it hasn't been based on anything like what our disruption has been based on with coronavirus. Um, but I did go through a leadership change when I was at Minnesota State. And uh, we had a leader that came in and kind of said, for lack of a better term, we're going to stop doing everything we've been doing. We're going to try over. We're going to try different Who methods. Who was that? Uh, Kent Stanley, who is a great mentor of mine and a phenomenal innovator in the advancement space. Um, he just came in and said, the thinking that got us here is not the thinking that's going to get us there. And so we are going to change metrics. We are going to change alignment. We are going to change portfolios. And the, what he did, I mean, we established swim lanes from discovery to alumni, to annual giving, to annual leadership giving, to major giving. It was the most incredible turnaround I've ever been a part of. Um, but to the scale of which we're seeing everybody adapt has been, this has been to use the term unprecedented. Um, but I do think we have a term that we've been using a lot lately called COVID keepers. And there's a lot of things that we've been doing over the last few months that we feel like we've been forced to pivot. And this innovative approach is probably going to be the future of the way we innovate or engage alumni donors in the future. Um, because it took something like this to rattle the cage enough to go, is doing a scholarship luncheon at noon on a Thursday the best way to reach every named scholarship donor across the country or only those who are within 30 minutes of Lincoln, Nebraska or Omaha or Kearney, Nebraska? And so we've been able to reach more than 80% of our scholarship donors um, through some innovative virtual scholarship pages and, uh, and events and doing some videos specifically from the scholarship recipient for that donor, where maybe out of 100 named scholarship donors, 30 would have shown up at your luncheon, you're now getting feedback from 80 plus percent of them. Um, and they get love to it. hear from the student and the impact. I, I love mean, it. it's awesome. Now this is a, I mean, this is a recurring theme. We actually just spoke with uh, Deanna Carlson Zink and Bob Knutson from the University of North Dakota Foundation. And they were saying that they just went through a similar experience, which was instead of having just the luncheon with the student athletes and their scholarship supporters, they actually filmed 30 second videos from all of the student athletes and they were doing trick shots and they were doing, you know, whatever kind of TikTok version they wanted to create for, uh, for the stewardship of those donors. And uh, it was far lower cost, far uh, more efficient than the traditional ways that we were able to do these things. And it allowed us to reach donors wherever they are. And I think that's where we need to break this narrative that, well, you know, in-person is better, but Zoom will, will, will be fine. We can get by with virtual. And it's like, no, in some regards, virtual can be better. It can be better for the donor, better for the student, better for the staff, more cost-effective. And so it doesn't mean that 
just doing Zoom call after Zoom call is going to make it better. We've got to come up with creative ways, like you were talking about, to, to, to be able to reach donors who do not live a car drive away. And I think that's a good segue into one of the final things I want to discuss, which is this idea that you've talked about, that this should really be the thank you economy, that that could be a big part um, of the future of, of how we think about the sector. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I steal that from the book of the title by Gary Vaynerchuk. And, uh, you know, when Gary V was really launching or growing Wine Library, what, 20 years ago, uh, he talked about the fact that he wasn't taking a mass market approach to people. And that's really, quite honestly, the, the antiquated annual fund model that many schools have and still use, because at the end of the day, it's still effective at mass scale. But what he said he started doing is, uh, he was in those message boards with wine lovers who were talking about this vintage or that vintage. And he started chiming in and you should think about this and you should think about that. He never tried to pitch them. Uh, he just wanted to be seen as an expert in that space. And over time, people start going, man, this guy knows a lot about wine. What do you think about this Chardonnay? And then he could start saying, well, why don't you come to winelibrary.com or, or start ordering wine through my website and I think that we're going to start seeing that, particularly from impact and stewardship. I have a fundamental belief that the key to annual giving retention and reactivation is about thanking people in a way that's meaningful to them and showing what you did with the money. Uh, we, we as higher ed advancement institutions do a great job touting how much money we've raised and the brand new shiny building, but you know, what did that $1,000 gift ultimately do to help somebody in, in their time of need. And, and I think even in COVID, we're getting some phenomenal stories out of this. So I think of uh, how we can really start that thank you economy of, I mean, the, the key here is scale, but with 53,000 donors across the University of Nebraska system, in a perfect world, I would love every single donor to our university to find out what their dollar did to make the difference in the life of a student. And when you talked about what <clears throat> UND is doing, I want the TikTok video. I want them to hear from these students. I want them to learn about them. I want them to see the face and the name of the person that they're supporting. It means so much to that student and it means a lot to us and it means a lot to the donor. And yet, because of the way we've been staffed and organized, not just at Nebraska, but at advancement shops across the country, we've only been dealing with that top one and a half percent. And then everybody else gets the, dear donor, here's the impact that your gift has made on all these thousands. Right, that's but it. No, it's real. Yeah, can I ask? Across the, so the 53,000 number, is that across the system? Yes. How many students are there across the system? Uh, about 50,000. Could we have one student send one 30 second video per year? Could we? It seems doable. I mean, that's my point. That is what's going to happen, right? We're not architected for it to happen right now, but when you really break it down, like in the course of 365 days, could we have one student or guess what? Maybe we could have half the students send two videos or a quarter of the students send four videos, right? There's so much opportunity mm -hmm. to go beyond the form letter, you know, to go beyond the dear insert name. And I think that um, we have to because the, the mass personalization of marketing um, is still marketing. And I think we've got to insert more and more of that sales element, that human connection that, inspires a kid to update their LinkedIn profile that inspires a donor to consider hiring uh, that kid, uh, you know, and that would inspire somebody to renew their gift at a higher rate than they get with uh, dear insert name. Um, we only have a couple of minutes left. You've already given a bunch of shout outs, but uh, one thing I'd like to get your perspective on is when you think about the, um, the advancement professionals you've worked with, who you really think most highly of, you mentioned Holly, you've mentioned Kent, um, what are the characteristics that really come to mind when you think about building the dream team? And maybe you see some of this even with students that you've taught as well. Like what are those just common characteristics that you're looking for um, when, you, when you hire or build your team? Well, the three things that we talk a lot about uh, on my team in Nebraska is innovation, collaboration, and excellence. Um, <clears throat> innovation is we've got to be willing uh, to wake up every single day and be willing to try something new. There's an old Mike Babcock quote, <clears throat> the hockey coach that said that what won the cup last year can't win the cup this year. That again, you can't, you can't win the championship and go, let's just do it exactly like that. Defenses adapt. Everybody has got your film. So you've got to pivot. And I think we all, 
in some ways we get a little lazy sometimes to go, I just want an idea that works. Perfect. Do it just like that next year. No, you got to be willing to look in the mirror and go, it did work. It worked perfect. Let's blow it up. Let's try something else. And that's not change for the sake of change. That's change to make sure that our donors don't have stagnant experiences that you get in the road of, I'm going to come and I'm going to get chicken parm on a Thursday at noon and meet a student like I do every year. How do you change it up? How do you make it a more immersive? And then that collaboration, uh, no one fundraiser is going to help any campaign get where they need to go. It needs to be integrated. Your alumni associations have their role. Your annual fund has their role. Data science has their role. Advancement services, major gift officers, and there needs to be trust that threads through all of that. So somebody who doesn't want to come and build the most amazing gift planning team or foundation relations team, but somebody who wants to come in and be part of a full advancement enterprise. And then uh, excellence, you know, I'm, I'm just a competitive guy and I've always been competitive. And I think that uh, if we're going to show up, I think our faculty, our staff, and our students deserve the best. They deserve our A game. Uh, our donors deserve our A game. Uh, we think of ourselves as the premier institution, not only in the Midwest, but in the nation. People should want to come to the University of Nebraska. People should want to donate to the University of Nebraska. So how are we going to win that vote, win that tuition, win that gift? We have to be better and show the impact better than anybody else. So I, I want people that show up with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder and go, man, I want to be the best foundation in the world. I want to provide the best donor experience that anybody ever has. Because if you come into a room with that mentality, uh, then you do get 50,000 videos from 50,000 students. That, I need people that can dream like that. Um, and we're building an amazing team. And, and quite honestly, I get to work with advancement professionals at Nebraska that have a combined 150 years of history. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. I love it, Nick. Those are inspiring words to close on. Uh, and if you are innovative, collaborative, and excellent, or want to be, uh, I would encourage you to keep an eye on opportunities with Nick and the system uh, because you do feel that. You feel that competitiveness and that high standard uh, that drives their work. And we get fired up by that at Evertrue. Um, and so, Nick, uh, with that, we're going to close today. Thank you for the partnership and for the good vibes. And we're going to see if we can get a little, a few of those guitar riffs that you played cut up into this podcast. So uh, stay tuned. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Brent. Mm -hmm.